0: So open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 6. We're continuing on in our study, in our sermon series on the book of Judges. Today we're in Judges chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 40. This is Gideon's Call, part 2. Covered, of course, part 1 last week. In God's economy, that is His plan for all things, we find in the Bible that the small and unimportant are frequently and usually the ones who are raised up for great things. Now, this is striking when you think about it because it goes against the human viewpoint. It goes against what we have seen in history, in the past, and Even today. The ancient viewpoint really epitomized um, in the great Roman Empire during the time that our Lord Jesus Christ had his earthly ministry. It it really shows um, not a particular viewpoint, but one that is just magnified. And this is an honor and shame culture that the Romans had. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that we very much have the same sort of culture, and the same sort of culture existed prior to the Roman Empire, during the time of the judges and other events in our Old Testament. And this viewpoint really is that the rich and the powerful are blessed by God, or the gods. That people become rich, and they become powerful because they are favored by deity. And conversely, the poor and the weak are not powerful, are not blessed, and perhaps in some cultures are even considered cursed because of what they lack in materialism and in the material world. And as I said, our modern American viewpoint is really Not much different when you think about it. Um, In all honesty, there are people in our nation who are born into elite circles, what are called elite circles. And you hear this talked about more and more. Um, There are people that are considered legacies. That is, their family name, their forebears, their father, their grandfather, etc., etc., who have gone before them, have earned them a place in society, a special place. And thus, they are allowed into certain elite Ivy League schools. Um, they're given uh, um, jobs in certain f- firms that, uh, unless you are from this class, you're not going to get a job in certain Wall Street firms, in certain law firms, particularly in the large metropolitan areas. And, and if you think that this is not so, well, <clears throat> there was a time when Karen and I lived in New Haven, Connecticut. I worked in the police department there, and that's the home of Yale University. And there's a very well-known building on Yale U- University that is called, locally, they call it the tomb And it looks like a mausoleum. It really does. It's kind of, um, you know, creepy looking. And this is the home or clubhouse of a special society. I won't say a secret society because everybody knows about it. The Skull and Bone Society, which is open to Yale upperclassmen. They're chosen in their junior year and in their senior year. They're a member of this club. No one is allowed in this club. The police department cannot enter into the tomb. The fire department cannot enter into the tomb. You know, the fire department has to do inspections. That's part of their job to make sure places are in uh, accordance with fire codes, fire regulations, safety regulations. That building cannot be inspected by anyone. There's a different set of rules here. Imagine a fraternity or sorority at Cal Poly trying to tell the police or the fire, you're not, you're not coming in. That wouldn't work. So I just bring this out to show that this, this, is, this is real. This is something that actually occurs in our society. Our society now is not much different from societies, cultures in the past. For example, um, the old British class system where people were categorized in certain classes, you had the royals at the very top, then you had the peers of the realm, the aristocracy, then the landed gentry, those that had the money, then the professional class, then the lower class. Very little movement was allowed within these classes, especially upward. You could, you could get knocked down, you know, if you lost your land and something happened and the the royalty, uh, the crown decided to strip you of your title. You, know, you could go down, but you couldn't go up. So as I said, these viewpoints are, are, are quite similar. Just, there's just a change of terms and perspectives in this. Along with, in the modern viewpoint, we've removed God from it. In the old British class system, of course, God was part of it. The, the, the idea that people were born into this privilege because God ordained that for them, God favored them. Now, I'm not arguing against God's ordination, God's decree, but what I want to point out and what we're going to get into in my sermon this morning is that the high and the mighty are not the ones that perform the great and mighty works decreed by God quite often in the Bible. Your status in society, whether you're powerful, rich, and well born, is in essence irrelevant in God's economy. It's part of God's decree. But think about the warnings to those people that we read. In Scripture, Christ warns that the riches and pleasures of life are like thorns that can choke out the fruit of the gospel. We do not see in the Bible that those who possess great power, humanly speaking, being raised by God to a greater power to accomplish his aims. What we see instead is God raises up the weak to accomplish the great things for his kingdom. And what we often see... And this is one of our lessons, is that haughtiness in those who are raised up by God to accomplish his decrees result in that person's downfall. We begin to think that it's us that are, that's doing it, that it's not God doing it. Here's another stark difference that we should be aware of, that righteousness in God's kingdom cannot be passed on as a legacy, like being born with a certain name and a certain status in society. We will see this with Gideon as we go through his account in the weeks ahead. We also see this with the monarchy in Israel. From a small, insignificant youth raised up to kingship, the line of David soon erodes into apostasy and wickedness even though there is a future for the line of David that is at the core of the Bible's message. But we see what human sin does in the interim. And all of this is part of God's lesson to us that the Lord alone is the source of our salvation, that the Lord alone is righteous, that the Lord alone is trustworthy, and that the Lord alone is is sovereign. So here we have in the chapter we are in, in Judges chapter six, we've seen 40 years of rest at the end of chapter 5. 40 years of rest, that is safety, security, and stability in the land, ends. Israel again apostasizes, turns away from the true God. This brings judgment. And Yahweh gives Israel into the hands of of Midian, the nomadic people from the east. And for seven years, annually, the Midianites raid Israel when Israel's crops start to come up. The Midianites devour the produce of the land. And we saw that the angel of the Lord visited Gideon, this young, insignificant youth, and the angel of the Lord instructs Gideon to save Israel from the hand of Midian. And initially, Gideon thinks this visitor is just a man. But as the angel speaks to him, Gideon realizes that this visitor is claiming to be the angel of Yahweh, that this visitor is claiming to be the Lord God himself in visible human form. And Gideon asks for a sign. A sign that it is you, that is Yahweh, who speaks with me. And as a means of this sign, Gideon prepares a meal for the angel of the Lord. A meal of goat meat and broth along with unleavened cakes of flour. And the angel, when he brings the meal, the angel instructs Gideon, put the meat, put the cakes on that rock and pour the broth all over it, drench that food with this broth and then the angel of the Lord takes his staff that's in his hand and he touches the tip to the meal and it ignites, it goes up in flame and the angel of the Lord disappears from Gideon's sight. Gideon reacts with fear when he realizes he's seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But then Yahweh speaks to Gideon And tells him, do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon then builds an altar where this happened, an altar to Yahweh at the terebinth of Ophrah. And he calls it Yahweh Shalom, or the Lord is peace. So this is what happens next. Now we're we're getting into our new teaching. Judges chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 25 through 27. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and built an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So now there's a problem. There are two altars in Ophrah. When, when, he's given this, when Gideon's given this instruction. He's built an, offer to, uh, an altar to Yahweh, but still standing as an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole. Thus, this instruction. And this altar to Baal has as its patron, the one supporting this cultic worship center, is Joash, Gideon's father. Gideon is to destroy the cultic worship center that his father had built. Think about this. Baal is apparently a tolerant deity. He's not troubled by cultic objects of the other gods. He doesn't, he doesn't mind that there's an Asherah pole next to his, 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 uh, his altar. Um, the, the Baals, these gods with the Lower G, they're part of a pantheon of gods. They are, they, are, they are created beings in the spiritual realm. They are not the creator God. They're used to being in a crowd. They're okay with other deities. That's what they're used to. Yahweh, however, the Lord God, the one true God... We are told in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 25, we are told that Yahweh is a jealous God. Also in Exodus, in, in chapter 34, the commandments given, you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God, whose name is jealous. Is a, this, is, this is an emphasis A very stark and clear emphasis on on this characteristic of God, jealous, kanah, an adjective used exclusively of God in the Bible. And it means that he does not bear any rival. He will not tolerate any other rival. The God of the Bible is described as a consuming fire, a jealous God. Also a holy God, a jealous God. And the Lord, according to prophet Nahum, is a jealous and avenging God. So these two altars cannot coexist. Cannot coexist, no matter what anyone's bumper sticker says. Gideon's father, Joash, had fallen into this trap of syncretism, that is, adding the worship of foreign deities alongside the worship of the true God, the God of Israel. this, This really is the natural pattern and practice of fallen man. Historically, throughout the ages, man collects gods to worship, like some people collect art or postage stamps. It results in religions like Hinduism that have literally thousands and thousands of gods. And the Bible clearly states that there are other Elohim, the Hebrew word for God or gods. It's a plural. These are beings that exist primarily in the spiritual realm. The Bible very clearly says these are real. And so Elohim is often translated, like I said, gods, little g with an s, plural. But there is only one true God. This is what we must understand. And our English translations can lead to a little bit of stumbling here. So I want to make sure that we're clear on this. There's only one true God. There is only one creator, the triune God of the Bible, by whom and through whom all things have been created. The Lord God whom alone is to be worshiped. None of these other Elohim are to be worshiped or treated like the one true God. So what we see going on here in Gideon's hometown in Ophrah is symptomatic of Israel's situation in general. We're looking at kind of a microcosm, but we can, we can uh, go up in elevation and see a bigger view. It's the same thing. It's not just a problem here where Gideon is treading the grain in the wine press. no. There's a problem. But the problem, the real problem, is not the relationship between Israel and Midian that has the people concerned. They're being raided. They're actually, they are being starved. They don't have their food. Their economy is being plundered. No, the problem is the relationship between Israel and Yahweh, the one true God. This has been compromised. This relationship has been compromised by the worship of other gods, At heart, Israel's problem is a spiritual one. And therefore, the saving of Israel that Gideon is called to do must begin with reclaiming Israel from apostasy, the worship of false gods. And there can be no shalom, peace, wholeness, covenant blessing for Israel as long as she remains divided in her religious loyalties. So Gideon is not allowed to enjoy for very long the shalom of a private and personal religious experience when he built his altar to Yahweh. That's not sufficient because the altar to Baal is still there. He's told that at once, that very night, there's going to be no delay. You must act now. You must act out the radical, transforming consequences of restoring the covenant relationship with Yahweh. And this acting out, this duty that must be performed at God's command will hit hard. And the place where it hits hardest is at home. And that's what Gideon must do. He must turn against the will of Of his earthly father, destroying his earthly father's place of worship. Now, his father is obviously an important man in this town. He has built the cultic worship center that all of the people go to. We'll see this in just a bit. Gideon, though, is fearful. He waits until the cover of darkness to tear down the pagan altars. Not an easy thing for Gideon to do. and We must acknowledge this and see it. Because not only was he moving against his tribe and his clan, he was moving, like I said, against his own father. He was risking everything by doing this. But here's the important thing. The Lord God knew all of this. It was not something that the Lord was unaware of. God knew that Gideon was afraid. God knew that it would be a conflict between son and father. But God didn't demand courage of Gideon. Courage was irrelevant. What God demanded was obedience. Obedience to his word. Gideon's fear was secondary to his faithfulness of what God had called him to do. And this is an important lesson for us. God doesn't demand courage of us. God demands obedience from us. Now I speak now to those who are in Christ, to those who are Christians, who, those who have the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you are not saved by Christ, obedience isn't expected of you like it is a believer. So it's not like, I, I want to become saved by the Lord, I must, be, I, must, I must do all of the... No, you don't need to do anything to come to Christ. I want to make that clear. That's not what I'm teaching. But when we are transformed by the Holy Spirit and become those who are in Christ, we become brothers and sisters of Christ, then... All of this pertains to us. I want you to see the difference. This is, I'm not preaching a work salvation here to you. I'm preaching an obedient life as a follower of Christ. Because many people now believe and act as if fear is a valid excuse to ignore God's commands, that personal safety and security overrides everything else, including God's word. That's the spirit of our age right there. We are worshiping, we as a people, not as God's people here, but collectively in our nation, collectively throughout the world, we are worshiping, people have turned to safety and security as their God that they worship. We've erected altars to these gods. And to fall for this idea of safety and security being paramount means you are worshiping a God whom you believe is completely unaware of the circumstances of your life. And such a God is not the God of the Bible. The true God is completely and intimately aware of every circumstance in your life, in my life, and in the life of every single person on the face of this planet, and those who lived in the past, and those who will live in the future. This brings us to my first point. The Lord God demands our commitment to him alone. The Lord God demands our commitment to him alone. There's no half-heartedness allowed for God's people. Our comfort, our safety, our security do not come before our commitment to God. The niceties of our relationships with family and friends do not come before our commitment to God. The standards of our society do not come before our commitment to God. James In his epistle, he warns us against being double-minded, like trying to be like the secular world and also a Christian at the same time. He tells us that to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And hear what Jesus has to say to the double-minded church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus warns, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, that we cannot serve two masters. For Gideon And also for us, those times come in our life when our commitment to the living God can no longer remain hidden. When we must declare ourselves, we must declare our loyalty, our allegiance, then we must burn our bridges if need be and stand alone against the cultural trends. We can see that today. In the agenda for homosexuality that has become the agenda for transgenderism. We must stand against the social trends. We saw something that was very, very disturbing in the midterm elections, and that was the pagan desire for the killing of babies. We saw three states enshrine in their state constitutions the right to murder an innocent child in the womb. The right to murder. We saw a couple other states that, I don't know about you, I think of these states, Kentucky and Montana, as being home for a lot of conservatives. But those two states rejected initiatives that would have protected the unborn. And Montana... Montana rejected an initiative that would have required medical treatment for babies that survived abortion. The people of that state rejected a law that would have required doctors to render aid to a child that had escaped the murderous act of abortion. A child in Montana and many, many other states can legally, according to our laws, be left to die cold and alone on a stainless steel plate. God save us. God forgive us that these things are happening in our nation. We must stand maybe even against the religious expectations of our community. What do I mean by that? We've seen the expansion of critical race theory into Christian thought and teaching. This is Marxism. This is atheistic principles of control. I'm certainly not a prophet. But I think looking at what we've seen and what we see in places, in institutions that claim to be Christian, that we may see a trend coming in so-called Christian churches and so-called Christian seminaries that pick up this satanic desire to enshrine the ability to murder babies. Many Christian churches and seminaries have followed along with the the rest of this uh, agenda, so do not be surprised. We must stand against that doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. It matters what God says. It matters what God's word says. If we are the last person standing and everybody turns against us, what matters is what God has commanded. Even if everyone else is in rebellion or disobedient. Syncretism has crept into all these aspects of our life, just like it did with Joash, the father of Gideon. And in verses 28 through 32, we read, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built, and they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah besides it. But Joash said to all those who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. For if he is a god, Let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerub Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now, Joash's altar of Baal and the Asherah, pole beside it are significant we see to the worship of the town where Gideon lives. Because the men of the town, first thing, when they wake up in the morning and they go outside with their cup of goat's milk, they see that the altar of sacrifice has been broken down. Why does it come to their attention early in the morning? Probably because they're starting their day with an offering to Baal. This is an important place. And these men are shocked by what they see. They demand, who has done this thing? They're astounded by what in their eyes is a shockingly disgraceful act. Think of what we as faithful people of God do and are commanded to do and think of what our society defines and calls a disgraceful act. And you'll get the idea of these lines crossing, how this is applicable to us. So the men of the town immediately launch an investigation. And their intrepid investigators soon have their culprit, their conclusion. Gideon, son of Joash, has done this thing. Well, how did they figure it out so quickly? That's what I wondered. And I thought about it. And read the text and looked at it. Well, the stronghold upon which the new altar to Yahweh stands is under whose control? It's, it's Joash's. It's Joash's property. And the ox used to pull down Baal's altar belonged to Joash, as did the bull sacrificed to the altar. Now, there's a reason why does the text tell us that this bull that is sacrificed is seven years old. Who cares how old the bull is? Really? Well, in a pastoral culture, bulls weren't allowed to just multiply. You didn't want a lot of bulls amongst your livestock. You'd keep some, you'd make them ox, you would, you would, um, you would uh, 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 castrate them, um, and they would be beasts of, of, of labor, beasts of burden, but a healthy productive male animal was problematic. It was hard to control. So this bull, being seven years old, is a prized bull. It's probably kept as breeding stock. And it's probably used by other people. This is what you know. champion bulls are used for. You know, people make money off of them. So undoubtedly, these other men knew of this bull. And this prized stud bull is sacrificed on an altar. A good stock detective would have figured this out very quickly. And Gideon, we're told, used ten of his manservants, his family's servants, for this midnight deconstruction and construction project. And you imagine these ten men under threats and coercion by the very important leaders of the town. That is quite possible that one of them spilled the beans it was the master's youngest son, Gideon. We didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. He forced me to do it. I'm just a servant. What could I do? We can understand that happening. We can see it happening. So the men of the town confront Joash with their findings and demand that he turn over his son in order that Gideon may be put to death for what he has done, for destroying Baal's altar and cutting down the Asherah. So Joash finds himself facing down an angry mob calling for his son's head. And he must choose. Joash must choose between the men of the town, its leading citizens, and his son. But yet at a more fundamental level, he has to choose between Baal and Yahweh, between the false god and the one true God. He must choose between syncretism and covenant obedience. He must choose between polytheism and monotheism. He cannot have both of these things. Gideon's action has left Joash no middle ground. That's what God does. He makes it. So we have to declare our allegiance to him or to the others and the others are demonic, they're satanic, they are anti-God forces. This is a breathtaking and critical moment in this story. Everything hinges upon this. But as soon as Joash speaks, it is clear what his decision is. And this crisis has passed because Joash has decided. Joash, the former patron of a heretical pagan cult, Morse before our eyes into a proto Elijah, a forerunner of this mighty prophet. He challenges his fellow citizens that if they avenge Baal themselves by killing Gideon, that either they will be executed before morning as murderers. Joash is saying, I will do this. You kill my son and I will have you or I will kill you as a murderer. Or they must risk having Baal exposed as powerless by doing nothing. As Joash says, if Baal is God, let him defend himself. He is God. It was his altar pulled down. Let him handle it. Much like Elisha calling out the priests of Baal and the apostate Israelites that we read about in 1 Kings. This apostatism thing just go, it comes around and around and around, it's constant. Elijah says to these people in the future, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That same question we must pose to ourselves. Joash makes a speech and no one moves. I'm reminded of all those Western movies I grew up on with the lynch mob at the marshal's office, and the marshal standing on the boardwalk, on the, on the wooden sidewalk in front, with a side-by-side shotgun in his hand. It's time for y'all to leave. And the first one who makes a move is going to get it. He faces down the lynch mob... And these leading citizens decide that they're getting frontier justice for Baal isn't worth their own life. That really is their allegiance to this God with a little G. Now we're dying for, just like we see, time and time again, when Israel is being threatened by external enemies during the time of the judges, do they turn to the Baals? No, they do not. Who do they turn to? They turn to the one true God. People who do what we know that aren't believers, when, there's, when there is a horrible crisis in their life, and they ask for prayer because they know that, you know, you've got some connection to God, that maybe God will listen to you. I, I, they're not sure there's a God, but if there is a God, let's just cover all bases. Would you pray for me? Or they pray themselves to God. Notice they, they're not kneeling in front of their bank book, praying to their money. They're not kneeling in front of their expensive homes or expensive automobiles, praying to those things. Those are the altars of Baal in our world. Those can be torn down, and it doesn't matter. No one really wants to die for them. To emphasize and memorialize Joash's verdict in this matter, he renames his son— He renames him Jarub Baal, which means let Baal deal with him. So Gideon, son of Joash, is reborn. In this this phrase, let Baal deal with him, there's some some, uh, translation difficulties that some commentators have with it, but I think it's very clear, based on the context of the story, what Joash is saying, yeah, my boy did it, and let Baal handle it. You guys just forget about it. If Baal's God, he'll deal with it. So now Joash is seen basically as a revolutionary hero and living testament to Baal's impotence and to the power, the true power of Yahweh, the one true God, which will be demonstrated as we go on in the story by Gideon, Jerub Baal's deliverance of Israel from the eastern invaders. This brings us to my second point. In a pagan culture, worship of the triune God, the one true God, is a revolutionary act. In a pagan culture, the worship of the one true God of the Bible is a revolutionary act. In a syncretic culture, to follow and worship God who demands that no other gods are to be worshipped that is a declaration and demand of exclusivity, which God is very clear of, eventually that will no longer be tolerated in a syncretic culture. Such was the case with the early church in the Roman Empire. Rome was fine with Christ being worshipped. Rome wasn't bothered by that. They thought, well, one more god, the merrier. They could, we can add this guy to our pantheon. You want to worship him, that's fine. But when it began to disturb the peace of the empire, that was a problem. The Roman historian Suetonius writes about this. In 49 AD, the emperor Claudius issued an edict banning Jews from the imperial city of Rome. Why? Because they were rioting Creating disturbances, not necessarily doing you know things that have happened in this country. They're burning down the town. Maybe they were, but anyway, the creating disturbances over Christus, Christ. Those who say Jesus Christ wasn't a real figure, he's in the Roman Senate's records. He was real. And there was a conflict between the Jews and the Jews who had become followers of him. And Claudius said, I'm not dealing with this. Move them out. They can't come into the, 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 um, the imperial city. When Christ was according to the Roman way of thinking, incorporated into the pantheon of their gods. They were fine with that until they came head to head with this crazy exclusivity that the Christians demanded. The Christians weren't okay with worshiping other gods. When they were told to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor, the Christians, many of them, not all of them, unfortunately, many of them said, no, we can't do that. What do you mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just a pinch of incense. It's okay. No, it's not okay, the Christians said. We do not worship any other god at all. Such is the case now in totalitarian nations where the state is God. Not much different from Roman emperor worship. Christ's death, His resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father demonstrates the impotence and defeat of these principality and powers, which are the spiritual powers of evil behind every false god and idol. These powers are determined to hold mankind in thrall and to worship our Lord in spirit and truth, which when when he spoke, to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 he said the time's coming and now it's here where you will worship in spirit and in truth to do that is to reject and repudiate the Baals and the Asherahs that surround us today there have been times in the past and there will be times in the future when civil government becomes evil and joins with a false religion and attacks the body of Christ like a ravaging beast. This is what the Roman Empire did. Christ has warned us of this, and he's told his church to prepare. And when we gather together to worship and to hear God's word preached, the truth is proclaimed. And by doing this, beloved, realize that you are pulling down the altar to Baal, Through this act, you're cutting down the Asherah pole. This is a revolutionary act against these powers. And there will be those who will demand death for those who commit this act. It's going on today, many parts of the world. It's a real and present threat. You know that. But in the West, for now anyway, we may face a cultural death. We may be canceled. You may get kicked off social media for preaching the word, for calling out someone's sin, for calling out someone's error in theology. They may attempt to have you die the slow death of starvation by taking your job away, by taking away your means to support yourself. It is the desire, realize it is the desire of Satan and his seed to take the lives of God's people. That's what he wants. But Jesus tells us very clearly in John's gospel that no one who is given by the Father to the Son will be lost. Our eternity is secure. It can't be taken away. We are alone given eternal life. It is only through Christ and that cannot be taken from you. Judges 6, 33-35, we read, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Or to meet them, excuse me. When the locust-like marauders swept out of the east again and came down on the fertile farmland of the Jezreel plain, in order to devour the crops and raid the farms of the Israelites, Gideon sounds his trumpet. And the response from Israel is proof that, as the text tells us in verse 34, the spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon. Now, the first judge that we, we, we looked at in this book is Atniel. And Atniel is the model judge. This is in chapter 3 of the book of Judges. There we read that the spirit of Yahweh came upon Atniel, the chosen deliverer. Here the spirit clothes Gideon, covers him. But the effect is the same. The deliverer is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what the deliverer has been chosen to do. And the effect is immediate in both cases, with Atniel and with Gideon, We are told Atniel judged Israel and went out to war. And Gideon blows the trumpet to summon his compatriots to war. And if Atniel's task of judging Israel before the battle was to call the Israelites back to covenant faithfulness, then Gideon has already done this. He's pulled down the altar to Baal in Ophrah and erected an altar to Yahweh there. So, the men of his clan, the Abirizorites, then his own tribe of Manasseh, followed by other tribes that were adjacent, surrounding the Jezreel Valley, answered the call of Gideon's trumpet. Besides the power of the Holy Spirit, though, we see human weakness in the story. We see this in verses 36 through 40. Please follow along with me as I read. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. To fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and all the ground around it, let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. Now the story of the sign of the fleece is a very well known as a biblical story. It's often taken as a model for seeking and obtaining divine guidance. However, it is anything but that. Remember, we're in the time of judges. During the time of the judges, very few things were as they should be. The story of the fleece really is about doubt. It's about impertinence in the face of clear and divine guidance. It's about placing demands upon God to make up for our self-declared and self-imposed inadequacies. Gideon, if you remember the beginning of the story, had a great deal of initial uncertainty that was evident in his meeting with the angel of the Lord. And this uncertainty returns now as evidence by his words in the last parts of verses 36 and 37 where Gideon says to the Lord, as you have said, as you have said, in regards to God's stated purpose to save Israel by Gideon's hand. Gideon wants to be assured of God's promise to save Israel through him. Gideon wants to be made more sure of God's sure word. Gideon tells God to give him a sign of reassurance. Notice, there's not a request here. There's a demand. He's telling God to do this. This reassurance that Gideon is to really and truly do what God has already told him to do. Not once, but twice already and that is to save Israel. The lingering doubt that Gideon has returns, even after he has successfully called out all of the tribes of Israel surrounding the Jezreel Valley. Success in being able to do this, this is a sign of anointing of Yahweh upon a deliverer. And Gideon has done this, but yet he doubts. Who is he doubting? Obviously himself. But is there not also doubt that God means what he says here? So in this well-known story, there's a very important change that takes place that we might miss. In the story of the sign of the fleece, the narrator who's telling us the story drops the covenant name of Yahweh, the Lord. He's not referred to as such. It's changed to Elohim, to God, to the generic term for deity, exclusively through the account of the fleece. This is indicative of the strain in the relationship, the covenant relationship, from Gideon's point of view, from the human side of view, from the Israelite side of view. What we've seen in the call of Gideon up to this point is the Lord Yahweh approaching Gideon, one of his covenant people. Obviously, by this very act, Yahweh has not abandoned his covenant people. He has sought out this one young man. Not abandoning the covenant relationship. On the contrary, Yahweh is maintaining the covenant relationship. However, when Gideon approaches Yahweh with a demand for a sign, we no longer see God's covenant name being used. Like I said, we see the generic term for God, Elohim. The assurance of the covenant relationship is gone in Gideon's mind. So Gideon knows intellectually that God is capable of driving out the Midianites and their allies. He references the Lord's mighty works delivering Egypt out of bondage. Gideon has seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He watched the angel burn up the meal on the rock. And the Lord, Yahweh, protected Gideon when he pulled down the pagan altars. And the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. We've seen this in the response to his trumpet call. So now Gideon lays out a piece of sheep's fleece on the ground of the threshing floor. And if it's wet from dew in the morning and the ground around it is dry, then God, Gideon says he'll know that God's word is true. And the next morning, that's exactly what happened. But that's not miraculous. It's a common phenomenon. In fact, uh, fishermen on desert islands were known to use this technique to obtain their water. A place where it was completely dry with no water, they would put out a wolf's fleet fleece. And in the morning, it would have gathered moisture from the atmosphere. That's, the, that's the, the, the way wool is. And they would wring out their water. They'd have drinking water for the day. So this is a lesser sign that Gideon asked for. He decides to ask for a greater sign. He says to God, please don't be angry with me, but I want to give you one more test. Now, as God's people, we're clearly commanded that we are not to test God. In Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. In Acts 15, at the council in Jerusalem, Peter stands up and speaks to the apostles and elders of the church regarding the sect of Judaizers who are demanding that Gentile men be circumcised before they be allowed into the new church of Christ. And Peter says to the council, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So Gideon tells God to reverse the process. Make the ground wet and the wool dry. This should not happen, but it does. And this is a true miracle. This brings us to my last point, point Point number three. God's grace is greater than our weaknesses. God's grace is greater than our weaknesses. Imagine a very close relationship that you have with another person, as close as could possibly be. Let's say a spouse. Your spouse has been faithful and true throughout your relationship, and your spouse wants you to do something which you think you're not equipped to do. But your spouse promises to be with you and help you. So you begin. And your preparatory efforts are all successful. Then on the eve of the big event, you demand that your spouse give you a sign, a sign that your spouse really, truly loves you and is committed to your relationship. How do you think your spouse would react to that? Exasperation? Frustration? Maybe a little bit of anger? Yeah, probably. Probably something like that. But notice, this is not how the Lord reacts to Gideon, is it? The Lord does not chastise or reprove Gideon for his need of assurance. The Lord simply provides what Gideon needs without even making a snide comment. We can learn something from that when it comes to our relationships. Here's the thing, brethren. Gideon is not a man of great faith. You might say he's much like the Apostle Thomas who has earned the nickname Doubting Thomas. We're told in John's gospel. Thomas wouldn't believe the accounts of the other apostles that they had seen the risen Lord because he had seen Jesus put to death. He knew Jesus was in the tomb. He didn't believe it. He says, I will not believe it unless I see the wounds and put my fingers in them. I will not believe. Eight days later, Jesus appears. And somehow he knew exactly what Thomas had said. And he says to Thomas, here they are. Go ahead, stick your fingers in them. Thomas reacts. Oh, my Lord and God. Thomas has all doubt erased. And Jesus says to him, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Beloved, that's you. That's us. Blessed are we. We have not seen this, but we believe it. So both Gideon and Thomas were men of little faith. Doubting and unbelief is the prevalent weakness of fallen man. That's all of us. It it infects those, even those who have seen the Lord face to face. Gideon saw, saw the Lord face to face. Thomas saw the Lord face to face, lived with him for three years, and yet these men doubted. And when these men were struck with this doubt, the Lord did not respond with anger. No. Because Christ has told us that a little faith, a tiny faith, a faith the size of a mustard seed, is all we need. And he will do the rest. In fact, that mustard seed of faith is gifted to us from the Lord. When a child's on a walk with mom or dad, and you're walking and there's a big dog up ahead, and the child is afraid of that big dog, what does the parent do? Does the parent get angry, scold, and punish the child? No, the loving parent takes the child by the hand, reassures and protects the child. Gideon was afraid of a big dog, Midian. Thomas was afraid of a big dog, persecution and death. We are all sure to face big dogs in this life, and they'll be barking, snarling, and snapping big dogs. And these big dogs want and expect you to react with fear and what does an aggressive dog do when you react with fear it becomes more aggressive it becomes emboldened and empowered and more threatening but greater is he who is in us than it is is in the big dogs of this world the Lord never loses sight of us And we will see the Lord accomplish many mighty things through his servants, those that are small in the eyes of the world. Of that you may be assured and have no doubt. Please join me in a closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this message of your love, of your faithfulness to us the assurance that you give us in your word, Father, that even though we may fail, that we may fall short, that we may see ourselves as unworthy and insignificant, which, in fact, Lord, we know we are. However, you are mighty. You are trustworthy. You love us. We are your beloved. Father, And we give thanks for that. We give thanks for these examples of these mighty people of faith who are insignificant, small people, that we read about in the Bible, that we hear about in our church tradition, Father, that we're faithful to you. May we always be faithful to you, Lord. May the Holy Spirit fill us with faith, Lord, and be with us at the time of testing, Father. We know that you will do that. and We will not be fearful because we cannot imagine standing in those At that time, we know that at that time, you will be with us. Father, bless this day as we go through it. May we remain focused on you. Bless my beloved brothers and sisters as they face the week ahead, Father. Keep them safe. Empower them to be mighty witnesses to your word. And again, we pray for Pastor Steve and Becky and on their vacation and that they may return safely to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.